0: Let me invite you to turn to John chapter 1, because the gospel of John begins with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God. Then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now from this this prologue, we understand that the Gospel of John is about Jesus being made known, verse 18 there, by the Father. It is about Jesus' glory on display. So each passage that John brings to us is a description of Jesus' given to us to paint a fuller and more complete picture of who he is and what he has come to do. Now, I've had the privilege of officiating at a lot of weddings. And I think you will agree with me that the focus of a wedding is not the groom. The attention is not on the groom as he is walking into the chapel or the auditorium. The, the attention is on the bride. He plays second, third, fourth, fifth fiddle or whatever to her. She is on display. It is her glory that is really radiating. Now let's just think about this. When the groom enters into the chapel, what happens? People ready their phones, their cameras. They snicker a little bit. Here's a guy who's wearing a suit. Maybe he's all dressed in white. I don't know. Um, Some comments are made. People then look away from him. Isn't that great? You come in and people look away from you. Why? Because there's something more important than you at that particular time that is ready to come through the back doors. It is the bride. And there she is, and the doors are open wide, and she comes down with her Father, and she is the focus of everyone's attention. Guys, get over it. She is on display. It is her glory, so to speak, that is to be seen And friends, as we go through John's gospel, that is what is taking place in every passage, in every text, is that there may be interesting characters, important characters, but it's Jesus who is rising to the surface. It is Jesus that is being thrust up by John so that we can see who he is and understand the great Messiah that he is. So that is the sense of what we have as we come into this particular text. Jesus is the focus of attention, and we can see Jesus in all his glory. Let's jump in now at verse 1 and just kind of notice the setting of this great and well-known story. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now that's just a little parenthetical statement for those who are reading John's gospel because that story is coming up. And he's connecting just to make sure you understand who this family is and the relationship that's there. But then from this this setting, we can't really move into the theme. John gives us a theme of what is being being looked at in this particular story right at the front end. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now friends, I hope you get the connection here back to the prologue. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and as a result of that, we have the privilege of seeing his glory. And John is recording for us this this gospel so that his glory would be on display again. And here it is, Jesus saying, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So God is glorifying himself through his Son and through his Son bringing glory to both himself and to his Son. So in this passage, we really kind of get the lay of the land of how we're going to approach um, this story This glory of God is revealed through the Son of God in five ways, or maybe to put it this way, five revelations of the glory of God through the Son of God. So God is going to be glorifying himself through the Son of God in the person of his Son in five different ways. And here, we're going to jump now at this first one. I want you to notice his incomprehensible love. Now, It says in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sisters and Lazarus. But notice that this love is special. It is a unique and special love. Notice that the sisters, in addressing Jesus earlier on, say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And then here, John, in writing this account, points out, And stresses the fact that Jesus loved Martha and her sisters and Lazarus. So there's this theme of love that is kind of jumping out of the text at us right from the start. And of course, John, the apostle here, is writing this, and he in this gospel identifies himself as whom? The disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, one of the things that I think is important for us to recognize here is that Jesus, because he is the Word, made flesh, and so he came down and he experienced life in, in full humanity. In that humanity did develop relationships with people that were special and unique. Obviously, he had a mother. He had family. But here he had a family of, that, he, that he loved, clearly. The, the text is screaming this at us. And it's perfectly appropriate for him to have special kind of love. Not necessarily a special saving love, but it's a relational love, a phileo love. But that does not mean, then, that Jesus didn't love other people, too. Now, how many of you here love your family? Notice I didn't say how many of you don't love your family, okay? All right, how many of you love your kids? Now, let's just be honest. How many of you love your kids more than you love other people's kids? Is it awful to say that? It shouldn't be. That doesn't mean you don't love other people's kids. It just means that you love your kids more, and that's perfectly okay. And sometimes there are, there are friends that you have. That, that they're your friends. That's why they're your friends, and you love them, and your love for them is greater than your love for other people. That doesn't necessarily mean that other people are not the object of your love. It just may not be the same kind of special love. The difference is that when Jesus loves, or when Jesus, you might want to say, has favorites, it is never diminished or poisoned by the practice of favoritism. So Jesus' unique love does not diminish his love for mankind. His love is pure. It's right. It is is the best display of love there is possible. Well, we we strive for that, but we fail in it. It's okay, and it's right here for Jesus to have this wonderful, intimate relationship with this particular family. Now, Jesus here is is setting the stage for the drama of this particular sign, and and John is reminding us us of that because of this this, this love relationship that he has with this particular family. Again, notice verse five. Now, when Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now get that. Jesus loves Lazarus and Mary and Martha. So when he gets the news that Lazarus is ill, what does he do? He says, I'm staying put for two days. What kind of love is that? It seems really strange to us. I mean, that, that doesn't seem like love at all. It seems kind of, Distant and um, neglectful. Imagine for a moment when your child falls off the playground equipment screaming and writhing in pain and you're sitting on the picnic table, you don't casually look over and wave and say, I'll be there in a couple of hours. That probably would not be a good picture of love. Right? Or... When your elderly loved one phones you saying, I've fallen and I can't get up, you don't reply, hey dad, hang on, I'll be there in two days. Now, I'm not trying to be silly here, I'm trying to paint a picture here, and that is this, love responds quickly to people's needs, doesn't it? That's what we think, that's how we function. And so when we come to this passage, and Jesus is presented with a need, Lazarus is ill And Jesus steps back and says, we're going to wait two days. It just seems unusual. We have a hard time comprehending it. What kind of love, when presented with a need, will delay two days and not respond immediately? Well, I'll tell you the kind of love, an incomprehensible love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, for us to try and comprehend his love here... um, is really, really difficult, except for the fact that we have the bigger picture of what's going on. But we don't always know it in the moment. What might look at, we may look at this and say, how could a loving God be so insensitive to Lazarus, Mary, and Martha? And Jesus would say, how can a loving God stoop to do your will when his will is best? You see, oftentimes we want God, we want Christ to stoop to our will to do what we want because if you love me you would do fill in the blank right because we've already mapped out what it is that we feel should take place or what needs to take place so God we're waiting for you to do this this is what I want why would God stoop to do your will when his will is best now you may not see that in the moment and here Mary and Martha don't see that in the moment and that's not a knock against their character I don't think any of us would But Jesus is in the process of doing something. And it is all part of his love. So he wanted Mary and Martha to go through the grief of loss and to ask the question, if Jesus had been here, would our brother still be alive? Now friends, this this smacks against the, the kind of health, wealth, and prosperity message that is so prominent in so many churches. That God doesn't want you to be sick. Are you not reading your Bible? Do you look at what Jesus says? Well, no, You see, God, yes, he wants you to, he doesn't want you to be sick, but he wants you to be healthy, and he wants you to, and it's just like, come on. Because clearly here, Jesus has a desire to display his glory through this. So Jesus wants Lazarus to be sick. (gasps) Yeah even to die so that his glory can be on display. Now you try and wrap that around what love looks like, it's hard for us, right? It's really incomprehensible. Now, by no means are we saying, well, we need to be like Jesus then. This is a unique, divine kind of sovereign love that we can't comprehend, but we trust. So this is not saying, hey, listen, if you have a friend who... who's sick, and you should be there right away. Jesus waited two days, so you wait two days. No, don't. that's not the point here. This is a unique, sovereign, purposeful decision on the part of Jesus Christ because there's a bigger thing going on. You and I are not him. And we don't have that kind of control over mankind. But we can learn about who Jesus is and what he's doing in our lives, in our situation, and trust that, He loves us in spite of our circumstances and in our difficult circumstances. So get this, when you are going through a trial, when you are sick, when you are having the experience of the world falling out from under you because of some kind of difficulty, it isn't because Jesus doesn't love you anymore. He does love you. His love is constant. His love is purposeful his love has a bigger picture in mind than maybe you can see at that particular moment. And he wants you to cling on to him and to trust him in it. So he loves us, but his love for us is often incomprehensible to us, but it is a divine love nonetheless. So not only do we, we see his incomprehensible love, but we also see, secondly, his confident courage. As the story goes on here, with, with this this. this 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 act of love and this attitude of love, this moves us into this next kind of stage of, of confidence and courage. Notice what verse seven says. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now just remember, I know it's been a couple of weeks, but we were just in chapter 10. And if you remember what happened in chapter 10, we had the leaders of Jerusalem Seeking Jesus again, wanting to stone him for blasphemy. They wanted to kill him. And that's not the first time that has happened. But now, you know, the stage is set where there is this huge antagonism toward Jesus in Jerusalem. And so when you see Judea, that, that, the idea there is this Jerusalem. And so Jesus is saying, okay, to his disciples, let's, let's go again to Judea. So chapter 10, the, the good shepherd is being challenged. They want to kill him. Here's the question for Jesus by the disciples. Why would you want to walk right back into the meat grinder again? Notice what it says in verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? You've evaded their grasp a number of times. You're at least a couple of days' journey from Jerusalem. Why why would you want to go back there? You're safe here. You're free from all of that um, that harassment, that constant harassment. You will put yourself in danger again. Now, friends, all this makes sense. I don't think the disciples are speaking out of turn here at all. I think they, they are looking at this in a wise way. Any of us would be thinking the same thing. Let me just kind of paint a picture for you from the world of missions. There have been times when I have been on a mission trip where where I'm going, uh, people are questioning, why are you going there? So when we've considered a planned mission trip to various countries where there's unsettling danger and you know, we have to say, are we going to stay or are we going to go? I remember um, the, the possibility of going to, to Mexico with a youth group at a previous ministry. And at that point in time, the cartels were chopping people's heads off. Remember that just a few years ago? And the question is, like, parents are like, I don't know if I want my child to go. I understand that. Perfectly legitimate. Should we stay or should we go? Should we hold our kids back or should we let them go? And and, and I don't think you can say, well, one is not trusting God, one is is trusting God. This is a natural tension. This is perfectly good for us to process things this way, right? Um, When I've gone to Russia, there were, in Russia, bombings that were taking place in Moscow. The, the bombings took place in, in, uh, in Beslan, if you remember that. Should we go or should we stay? What's wisdom say? Hey, there's this constant question there, right? Um, danger in Bolivia. We're looking at partnering in Bolivia. Well, communism is on the rise there, right? There's kind of an anti-American sentiment that is on the rise there. So do we stay or we find somewhere softer, nicer, gentler that we can go and we can partner? These, these are natural questions, they're legitimate questions. Do we walk into the meat grinder or do we stay at home? That's the question that Jesus now is faced with based on the circumstance. And notice what happens now in verse 8. Jesus answers, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, there's 12 hours in a day. These are not 12 60-minute hours. Back in, in Christ's time, in, in, the, the, they divided the, the time of light into 12 divisions. Okay? So it wasn't as hard and fast 12 hours necessarily that like we would think of it. Okay? But the, the point here that he's making is this. The 12 hours is when people work. The 12 hours is when you're out and you're going and you're doing stuff. When the 12 hours are over, when night comes, that's time to be home. That's time to be with your family. That's time to be safe. You don't go out and that kind of stuff. And there's a a bigger picture here with this 12 hours thinking, and that is this. The 12 hours really are representing his his ministry, his his purpose here on this earth. He is right now in the light. His time has not yet come. His hour has not yet come. And so if his hour has not yet come, then what does he have to worry about? It's not time for him to die. He is completely in the care and in the hands of his Father. So whether I'm in Jerusalem and I'm having stones thrown at me, or whether I'm, you know, I'm here safe in Bethania, which is where he is, hey, I'm, I'm in control, or God, is, the Father is in control of what is taking place. And we translate this into our context. Your time to go is when the father says it's your time to go. Now, friends, hear this. I have a son who's in the Marines, right? You know that. One of the counsels that he was given by someone that we know, appreciate, and love is hey, listen, the best person to be handling bombs is a Christian. Because you know where you're going. Is that right? The best person to be standing in the difficult place is a person who has the confidence that if they die, they're in the presence of the Lord. But we don't always function that way, do we? <laughs> Our time is in God's hands. And that should help us think through what it is that we have before us. That's why Jesus says in Mark eight thirty-four, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you remember uh, the German pastor that was in prison and ultimately um, executed here, said this in The Cost of Discipleship. He says this, when Jesus calls a man to follow him, he bids him come and die. And friends, the growth of the church has taken place across the world because there are people who are willing to take the gospel and are willing to die in taking the gospel. They're not saying, oh, you know, the danger is too much, I'm unwilling to go. They're being wise, they're being smart, but they're also being courageous, and with that courage, there is confidence because they know my life is in God's hands. When it's his time, he'll take me home. Is that our attitude? And notice Thomas's response here, verse 16. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. He's getting something there, huh? Come on, guys! Let's go die! Who wants to die, huh? Let's go back to Jerusalem! Let's die together. Now, there may have been kind of a zealot attitude going on here. We we don't know, but you know what? Jesus knew what he was doing and that his his, his life and his purpose was according to the will of his father. And so he was courageous and he was confident. Now it's ironic, isn't it, that Jesus is going to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead and at the same time he calls us to die. He knows that his hour is near, but his, he confidently approaches what, what is this, this difficult antagonistic territory he, he confidently approaches it because he has the courage and the certainty that his hand, his life is in his father's hands and his time is not yet. So friends, when we are securing God's hands, when we are living according to his will, it doesn't matter if we're in Bethania, Bethany, or in the meat grinder of Jerusalem. He will call us home when it's time for us to come home. Now, a couple of cautions there. We, we move wisely seeking his will, but there's no reason to court death, right? So Gavin, if you're ever out there and you're chasing down, you know, you're chasing down bombs, you're not like dancing through the tulips, right? I mean, you're being smart, you're being wise, and that's true for us. We don't say, oh, I'm going to jump in front of a car, see if God's going to keep me alive. Probably won't, and that was probably your time, okay? But you, you, get, you get the point, right? I mean, that's just the reality. This is not being foolish, But this is also saying there is no reason to fear man. Because when you fear man, that is likely hindering you from doing what God wants you to do. So we need to be careful here. Say, God, my life is in your hands and I will go wherever you want me to go. Help me not to fear man. Now, that's big picture, that's kind of bold, but this also happens kind of in a small way. You know, whether at work, Am I going to fear man or am I going to boldly, confidently stand for the Lord Jesus Christ? If I'm at school, am I going to fear man or am I going to boldly, not not obnoxiously, but I'm going to stand for what God has done in my life and who he is and what he's accomplishing there? Am I going to be confident and courageous because uh, of his purposes? Hugh Latimer, you may know the name because of the story in him and Ridley who were both burned at the stake. Great Puritan, while he was preaching on a particular Sunday, the the King of England came in, King Henry. And so Hugh Latimer, in his sermon, basically took on his his own self in in the caricature of, of preaching and he said this He said, Latimer, be careful what you say, the King is here. A little later on in the sermon, he said, Latimer, be careful what you say, the King of Kings is here. And friends, hear this. We don't need to fear Henry. We don't need to fear Bill. We don't need to fear George. We don't need to fear Saddam. We don't need to fear Osama. We don't need to fear Barack or possibly Mitt. Whoever it may be, Christ is on the throne. We don't fear anyone because he reigns supreme. And here Jesus is plugging ahead with confidence and courage because of his Father's will. Notice next, his purposeful joy. We've touched on this already, but we'll flesh it out some more here. Notice Jesus speaks to his disciples with purpose. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. In other words, no big deal. Why do we have to go on this journey? Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Now we obviously have the advantage of having a bigger picture of the story. We also have the advantage of understanding if you've grown up in the church that sleep is a euphemism for death, right? It's kind of a softer way of talking about death and of course this is what is used in the gospels in the New Testament and Jesus here is using it too. So we're not like the disciples, we're not at a disadvantage so to speak Um, But notice what Jesus says then in verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, and I just flashback here. Remember the, 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 the Pharisees were asking Jesus to explain who he was plainly? There's that same word being used here. Jesus now plainly speaks to his disciples. Lazarus has died. He's explaining what he means here by Lazarus has fallen asleep. He's died, and for your sakes I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Did you get that? Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad that he is dead. For your sakes. For your sakes. Why for your sakes? So that you may believe. Literally that means come to believe. It's not so much that the disciples were not believing. It's more that the disciples now needed to grow in their belief. Now listen, you may have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you have not completely believed everything there is about the Lord Jesus Christ. You're still in process. You're still learning. You may have embraced him as your Lord and Savior. You're now one of his children, but you're still learning to believe. You go through stages in life, new circumstances, You know, children, growing up, Kids going to school, graduating, going off to college, getting married, empty nesting, all these different stages you go through. And each stage, each circumstance means that I need to believe Christ is sufficient and will satisfy that stage just as much as he did the other. We are constantly growing in our belief. And that's the idea here. Jesus is taking them and pushing them into this new stage He says, I'm glad I wasn't with Lazarus. I'm rejoicing that he has died because through his death you may believe. Now, specifically for the disciples, he says then after that, let us go to him. And again, right away we see Thomas responding. And how does he respond? All right, let's go. So we may die. That's, That's where it kicks in there. Thomas is willing to go, he's willing to believe, he's willing to die. But this this growth in belief is not limited to the disciples. I really believe that that when we we come through the story, this growth in belief is going to be taking place in Mary, and it's going to be taking place in Martha. God, through Jesus, is is accomplishing this this growth in belief in them also. And just, let's flesh that out. Look look at... uh, Uh, at at the the interaction with Martha. We we see some of that growing faith now uh, in the the wrestling match that is going on in Martha's heart. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But. Now notice it doesn't stay at verse 21. It says, but even now I know Whatever you ask from God, God will give you. In other words, oh Lord, if, if you had been here, is, is, is her statement, is her cry, but she's, she's immediately pushing through her grief, through her sorrow, and wrestling a God-centered theology into what she's experiencing. Do you see that? I mean, here again, verse 20, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, that's just expression of grief and sorrow, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This is a theology that takes us to the place of resignation before God and says, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. God, whatever you choose to do, I'm going to trust it. Isn't that what God calls his children to do when faced with difficulties or trials? Now get this, he wants us to feel the emotions that we feel. This is so important. A lot of times when we talk about God's sovereign purposes and and what he's calling us to do, there can be a sense in which we just kinda push emotions and, and our feelings off to the side. It's not that your feelings are bad Your feelings just can't rule you because when your feelings rule you, you will not see God in his glory. What's going on here is is he's saying, listen, I I want you to feel the emotions that you feel. You should be sorrowful. You should be experiencing grief. That is natural. That is right. But fight through that and growl onto what you know to be true about me. And see all of this in perspective. He, so, he wants us to push through those feelings of despair, grief, and emptiness and loss to a theology that is rooted in him. So, Jesus then pushes back to help her growing faith. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. But that, by that, Jesus meant that Lazarus would not stay in the tomb and that he would be raised today. But that's not what Martha's thinking. What's Martha thinking? Martha's thinking. We're told here, she's thinking about this general promise. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's still thinking big picture. She's still thinking, you know, Jesus is quoting to me, you know, Romans 8, 28. Well, we know that all things work together for good. You know, general principle, boom. You know, that'll help you today. Now, that does help as a big backdrop. It's a general principle. But specifically, for you, what do you need to know? See, Jesus is not talking about the big the big general principle, although that's good, that is the hope of, of, of Israel. It's the hope of, uh, of Judaism, that the Lord, uh, their, their, their Messiah would return, that there would be a resurrection. But he keeps pushing her, and he keeps moving her from the general to the specific, and he's basically saying this, that any resurrection, past, present, or future, comes only through him. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Die. Do you believe this? Now there are some very pointed questions in the Gospels that Jesus gives. And there is none more pointed than this. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And friends, in, in, in these couple of verses here, we have this culmination of themes that are rampant in the, John, in the Gospel of John. First of all, I want you to notice um, that these couple of verses mirror John's stated purpose of evidence, belief, and life. Turn to John 20. John 20, 30 and 31. You know this if you've been a part of, of our time together in John's Gospel. This is the theme of John's Gospel. This is the purpose statement, so to speak. And I just want you to, to notice how it mirrors this statement that Jesus gives in what she affirms. In particular, this is what she says in verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, John 20, 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in, that, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Does that sound familiar to you? She is saying everything that John is trying to put on display. So this mirrors John's stated purpose. Secondly, these words by Jesus and then reinforced here by Martha reflect the unfolding revelation in the preceding chapters. Bruce Milne says it well. I'm just going to repeat what he says here. Jesus has been revealed as the giver of life in a number of ways. Materially, he gives life to water, making it wine. Spiritually, he offers the new spiritual life in the kingdom of God to Nicodemus. You remember that story. He offers the life that springs up within a person, satisfying all thirst to the woman of Samaria. Physically, he imparts life to a dying boy, a long-standing physical paralytic, a man born blind. This is all evidence that John has been putting out for us, setting out for us on our table of evidence, so to speak, or on your plate, and just kind of saying, taste this, taste this, taste this, taste this. It's all good. It's all adding up. It's all being mixed together here so that you can see that it's driving and pushing toward this one particular encounter. So it reflects the unfolding revelation, revelation of the preceding chapters. Now his gift is primarily eternal life. It is also talked about as being abundant or full life. And this life he gives is nothing less than the indestructible life of the resurrection, the life of the deathless God that we have been privileged to receive. Again, Bruce Millen says this, this resurrection life which triumphs over death is not confined to the distant future but is present here and now in him who is the resurrection, the embodiment of the promised life and salvation of God. To believe in Jesus means that death lies defeated. The third way in which this kind of culminates is this. It continues as the fifth and, uh, of the seven great I am's unique to John's gospel, right? There's the I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate for the door of the sheepfold, I am the good shepherd, and now I am the resurrection of life. He's saying, I am. This is who I am. This, this helps us see who he is. He helps us to get these images to, to remind us and to give us a perspective about Jesus that, that maybe we wouldn't have if we just had kind of like a two-dimensional thing. He's, he's coming at us from all different angles, saying, look at me, look at me, and I'm spinning around and I'm showing you who I am. I want you to see that I am the Messiah, that I am the Son of God. And that's why I am the bread of life that satisfies people. I'm the light of world uh, that, that gives, gives light so that you can, you can see and you can, you can function and you can know where to walk. I'm the gate, I'm the good ship. All these things are pushing now to this, this fifth one. I am the resurrection and the life. And friends, the question we must be asking ourselves is this. Do we believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Now, as I said there, this is a purposeful joy. Jesus takes delight in pushing us in our trials, in our difficulties, so that he grows our Faith. That's what he's doing here with the disciples, with Martha, and of course now we have Mary. Jesus, after dealing with Martha, must deal with Mary. Look at verse 28. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. I I am humored by that because they think that they're going to the tomb, and what we have here is an entourage of professional mourners that are going with her, and they think they're going to the tomb, but they're not. They're going to see Jesus. Now, just remember all the encounters that had taken place in Jerusalem with Jesus. He's a wanted man. And here here he comes. So so Martha calls Mary secretly. She comes now and meets with Jesus. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary is found three times in the gospel account. Each time she is falling at Jesus' feet. Just ponder that. In Luke chapter 10, verse 39, she's sitting at his feet, listening to him teach the word. Here in John 11:32, 32, she's falling at his feet, pouring out her sorrow. In the next chapter, chapter 12, verse 3, she's coming to his feet to give him praise and worship. But the only recorded words of Mary are found here. And they echo what Martha has just said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, you say, well, you know, is that just kind of stoic? Is she just repeating what Martha's already said? No, she's, she is overcome with grief and sorrow for the, the, the death of her brother. And that's all she can say. So so Jesus is growing her faith, and he's not done growing her faith. This whole story is about growing faith, and that is still yet to be solidified here. But in the process here, we find Mary, who's just overcome with grief. And of course, Jesus now, because of his love, because of his courage, and because of his joy, presses on. And what we find here is what I'm calling a compassionate anger. And I have to explain this. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved within his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now I realize the verse that we just finished there with is probably the, the favorite verse for children to quote because it is the one they can remember the best, right? Jesus That's the shortest verse in the Bible. But lest we, we must be careful that we do not take that verse out of its context and just see it as Jesus weeping. I want to first of all focus on the fact that Jesus is a compassionate Savior here. That's what we find in reading these few verses. We are at once confronted with the deep compassion of our Lord and Savior he wept. Literally, that means he burst into tears. Now, I, I, I say this is important because when you read Martha's or Mary's response to Jesus and then Jesus' response to her, it's clear that she was just so emotionally, sorrowfully, uh, and, and, and grieving to the degree that Jesus responds by bursting out into tears himself. There is this intimacy, there's this love that is going on between them, but he's bursting out. He truly is one who weeps with those who weep. And that is true because he is the word made flesh who dwells among us. He is that one who has faced temptation like we have faced temptation. He understands our frailties. He understands our difficulties. And he weeps with us when we are going through trial and difficulty and struggle. That is what's going on here with with Mary and with Jesus. This, of course, is in contrast to the, the rest of the professional mourners that are there. Now, for for us in, in our American context, I don't know, you may have in your family context experienced different, different things, but typically in our American context, when you go to a funeral, there's almost an ethic that says, Shh, keep it quiet, because it's respectful to be quiet, right? You go into the Judean culture, when there was a funeral, it was and they're professional mourners. It honors the family to have professional mourners present, crying out, and weeping. It's a noisy affair. And that's what's going on here. So when this this group gets up to follow Mary, it's this group that says, well, we've got to be there to mourn when she's at the tomb. It's part of our job. It's part of our function. So he's certainly having compassion. But it is in contrast to this, this might want to say, paid compassion that is going on here. Now, it's very likely, just because of this account and a couple other accounts um, that have to do with Lazarus and, and this family, that, that they were wealthy. And so they had a lot of people that were there, servants, the tomb, professional mourners. But friends, there's something deeper going on here. There's something, I want to say, uh, more significant than simply Jesus is feeling your pain. And Jesus understands your grief. He does, but there's something far more important that is taking place in this passage that if we simply just said Jesus is compassionate and left it there, it would not be appropriate. Notice in this passage it says, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So this is the anger part because this is not talking about compassion. This is not talking about some, some grief or some pain or some sympathy that he's experiencing in his, in his heart. In his being, it is the Greek word embrimaomai, not that you have to repeat that, which is used to describe the snorting of horses. That sounds really compassionate, doesn't it? I'm really having a hard time. It just doesn't go together. And what that word means when used in the context of human relationships is that Jesus here is experiencing extreme anger. He is outraged. B.B. Warfield says this, Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state of inexpressible anger. True, he did also respond with tears, but the emotion which tore his breast and clamored for utterance was just rage. What we have here, as in the cleansing of the temple, is the wrath, of the lamb. Now friends, we, we, we must put these together. That's why I say, a compassionate anger. Jesus is weeping with them because of their sorrow, because of their grief, but at the same time, he's weeping with them, he is outraged. So the question is, what causes Jesus' anger? Now some have suggested, It's the fact that Jesus was inconvenienced and had to come to Bethany to be here with this family that he loved. Um, Survey says, "Ah," all right, okay. Some have said, he's angry at the hypocrisy and the noise of the professional mourners. The answer again is, "Ah," because that was part of the culture of the day. That was understood. Some have said, it is the apparent lack of faith by Mary and Martha. And I would say, although there is a, an, an evidence of a lack of faith, it's, it's a faith that just needs to grow and you can put yourself in their shoes and recognize, you know what, I would be in the same place. I don't think those are the reasons at all. Again, B.B. Warfield speaks to this. The spectacle of the distress of Mary and her companions in raised Jesus because it brought pointedly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its, un, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny. It is death, friends, that is the object of his wrath. And behind that death is the one who brings death that is the object of his wrath. When Jesus looks at the the situation here, he is outraged at the ravages, the wretchedness, the havoc, the grief that death has on his people. This is what death has done and is still doing in the lives of people. And Jesus responds with compassion for man's sorrow and outrage for death's ravages. Friends, just just soak that in. He is angry. He is angry that death has entered and that death ravages. He's angry. But he's not angry with Martha or Mary or Lazarus. He's angry at the devil, who is the one who brings death. Now, aren't you glad about that? You see, if we're just going to paint Jesus as, oh, he was there with Mary and Martha, he had so much compassion, and he was just giving them a big, big hug because he knew that they needed their hug and he wanted to relate with them, make sure that they knew that he loved them. That is insufficient. But when you realize that Jesus is compassionate but at the same time angry at the source and the problem and he wants to eradicate it and he will because he is the resurrection and the life changes the story completely. There's a tension here in this text. Jesus is Summon Lazarus. Summon, has been summoned. Lazarus has died. Mary and Martha are grieving. And the spectacle is one of, first of all, Jesus' love for Lazarus and the family. That's why it says, to so the Jews said, see how he loved them. He did. We're just bursting into tears. Coming all this way. He loved them. The second response, though, is Jesus' apparent hopelessness. Remember, the sign hasn't taken place yet. <laughs> We know the story, it hasn't happened yet. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And there's a little secret thing in the text there that you don't see, that no one sees, but we know. The answer is yeah, he could, and he will. And Jesus really had come to the, the question was, has Jesus really come to the end of his rope? and the answer of course is no. Could he have prevented this loss? The answer is yes. But Jesus is motivated, and get this, by his commitment to only do the will of his Father. He is fueled by his love, by his courage, by his joy, by his compassion, by his anger. He is the Lord, strong in battle, ready to defeat the enemy. And the stage is set for a divine display of God's glory through him again. And so verse 38 says, then Jesus, here's that statement uh, repeated, deeply moved, outraged, again came to the tomb. It was a cave, a stone lay against it. Now, I hope you're understanding a little bit more of the kind of atmosphere that has taken place here. This is not Jesus somewhere kind of you know, meek and mild coming and saying, you know, Lazarus, come forth. There is something far greater that is going on here. And so as we read this text, read it with all the passion that I am trying to help us see. And when Jesus is speaking, it is not this gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but the roar of the Lion of Judah, the command of the King of Kings, the tenderness of the good shepherd of the sheep. Jesus said, take away the stone. (laughs) I don't know how he said it. With Martha and Mary next to him. I don't think he's screaming, take away the stone. I don't think that's it. Because that would have scared them. But it was, a, it was a word with authority. And a word bristling with righteous anger toward death. And a purpose to demonstrate his power over death. Take away the stone, and we understand Martha and her response. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, "Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days." Now, friends, as much as I love the ESV, this is where the King James is far better, because she says, "Lord, he stinketh." <laughs> I mean, it's like, "There'll be an odor," you know. No, he stinketh. He's been there four days, and all of a sudden, bing, light bulbs are going on. Why four days? There's something significant about the four days here. It's not numerology. It's not the four days and something spiritual about four days. It's four days of him being dead, being buried. Now, just adding things up, Jesus was about two days distance from Jerusalem, so when they came to him and said, Lazarus is ill, Jesus said, ah, I'm gonna wait. How long does he wait, you remember? Two days, two days journey to come, it's the fourth day. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant, number one, because it gives us the magnitude of what he's doing. Secondly, it is because Jesus wants to be very, very careful, and wants to be very, very clear, I believe, that what is taking place with Lazarus is not some kind of a trick by some kind of um, you know, magician and somehow fooling everyone. It's not that he appeared to be dead, but it's that he actually died. And not only did he actually die, but he stinketh. And the stinketh proves what? That he's dead. Okay? There's another part here, and that is there was a Jewish Cultural superstition that believed that when someone died, their soul would kind of hover over the body for about three days, and when it saw the body begin to decay, then it would finally depart. Now that's not, you can't find that in scripture, just historically, just, that's just one of those, those, those kind of thinkings that are out there, and he may have been kind of responding to that, so on the fourth day, in the culture, the superstition would say, hey listen, three days is enough on the fourth day, we know this person's dead because the soul's gone. So Jesus says, take the stone away. Martha's response is understandable, but notice the four days were necessary here to point to the evidence. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? What's the answer? Yes. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. I want These people who are here, God, to hear me speaking to you so that they will connect the fact that what is about to take place is a reflection of you at work in me and you being on display through me and what they see and what they observe will be connected to the fact that I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with cloth. Then Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now hear this The Good Shepherd calls his sheep by name, and they follow him out of the sheepfold. Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out of the grave following the voice of his shepherd, the word made flesh, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. This is the final of the seven signs. Changing water into wine was the first one. The healing of the official son in Capernaum um, was the next one. The healing of of the invalid at the pool of Bethesda was the next one. The feeding of the 5,000 was the next one. Walking on water was another sign. Healing the blind man in Jerusalem. But now the seventh one, the raising of Lazarus in in Bethany here is this seventh sign. All these signs are miracles that Jesus performed, not simply to perform a miracle, but so that through the miracle, he would be on display. His glory would be manifest, that there would be a spiritual significance about what is, being, uh, what is taking place that would, that would paint a picture or foreshadow what Jesus was going to do or who he was in his character. And so from this passage, we can push ahead in the story and see that as Jesus approaches the cross, which he's going to be doing very soon here, there are some specific motivations that are driving him to die in our place, to conquer death, and ultimately to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Motivation number one, his love for his sheep. Motivation number two, his courage and confidence in following the will of his Father. What does he do when he's praying? John 17, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. The joy of growing our belief, knowing every step he's taken toward that cross, he was going to a place that was going to enable us to not only grow in our belief, but to bring new life, which certainly would grow our belief. His compassion for our suffering, his anger and, at death and the devil, all of them are, are fuel and motivations pushing him to the cross. But not just to the cross, are pushing him to the cross where he's going to die, where he was going to be buried, and where he was going to rise again. Why? Because he is the resurrection of the life. This is all foreshadowing, this is all pointing, this is all celebrating what he was about to do. Now, friends, there's some, some final things I want us to think about here. The first one is this. I just want to encourage you, to develop a wrestling theology. I'm not saying take up MMA. That's not what I mean. What I mean by this is develop a wrestling theology when you're going through difficulties or trials and even times of joy. Wrestle Jesus into the center of it all. Wrestle a biblical God centered theology because he not only wants to be there, he is at work in all of that. You've got to fight. You've got to fight against your feelings. You've got to fight against those things that may captivate you in the midst, maybe, of, of like this sorrow. Maybe you, you, you lo- you've lost a loved one, or maybe um, you're just someone who is really struggling with, uh, with, with a, a child or a, a, a friend who's, who's wandering in their faith, or whatever it might be, but you're, you're in sorrow. You've got to wrestle your way through your emotions, although they're real, but grab a hold of his truth, his theology, and bring it into the circumstance and see with that kind of perspective what he wants you to do. It's a wrestling match. Secondly, develop a confidence and courage in him. I'm not asking you to, you know, to go to some distant country and you know, be chased down by natives or something like that, okay? I'm not asking you to do that. But oftentimes, it's it's the courage and confidence that we need every day. You may actually be more likely to confess Jesus as Lord when a gun is pointed at your head than you would standing around the water cooler when someone's telling a joke that is not good, that is harming Christ. And you're just not willing to Defend him. Be courageous. Be courageous to do the things he's called you to do. Now friends, I'm preaching this to myself just as much as you. The gospel goes forward. The church grows. The church is, is strengthened because God's people are courageous because we trust a sovereign God who is working his plan through us. The third thing is this. Count it all joy. Life is a mess, isn't it? I mean, anyone here just tiptoeing through the tulips, just having a great time, and just, there's nothing ever wrong that happens? You just never know. As soon you know, you know what it's like? Hey, we went to Bolivia, and I thought when we come back from Bolivia, hey, I'll have a couple of weeks I can just kind of relax and get back, and it didn't happen, right? That's just, I mean, life is like that. You, you plan, and these things happen, and guess what? It's okay. you got to wrestle joy into that. you got to... That circumstance and say, he meant it for joy. Count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kinds. Why? Because he knows that through those trials he's working on you. All right, you, you know that passage there in James. The next one is this: believe. I think it's really important for us to to remind ourselves that Jesus is the resurrection. Resurrection of life, and ask the question: Do you believe this? I don't mean, do you believe in kind of the idea of Jesus? Do you believe that he's a good man? You know, Pastor, I've been coming to this church. You know, it's been here for a while, and really glad that it's here. And I, you know, I love to hear the word of God kind of talked about and and preached, and, and the stuff that we're doing. My concern, friend, is that you come face to face with the Messiah, the King of Kings, and that you believe wholeheartedly that he is the only solution for your life. And that you abandon everything else and that you run wholeheartedly to him and ask him to forgive your sin, to to change your life, to to rebirth you in him, and that your whole life would be mastered by what he says and what he desires. That's the gospel call. It's not just saying, hey, I, I think Jesus is worthy to be followed because he's a good man or he's a, you know, he's a good prophet or whatever. No, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Do you believe that? And do you believe him? Lord, help us today. We ask, we, we wrestle through, Lord, this text, a very familiar text. And Lord, we know because this is like one of those stories we have heard for years if we've grown up in the church. But Lord, help us to see ourselves in this and just to kind of flesh out the ways in which you want to work in us. Lord, we need to be confident that you love us. We need to be confident that what you've called us to, Lord, you will empower us and you will strengthen us with. And Lord, that our lives are completely in your hands. Lord, we, we, we need to know and be reminded that that there is joy in serving you, even through sickness, even through trial, even through heartache. Lord, we, we need to know that you are seated on your throne. Lord, help us today as we remind ourselves of the fact that you are the resurrection and the life, not just that you bring life, but Lord, you demonstrated by going to that cross and dying and being buried, and rising again, that you are the one who holds life in your hand. Help us, Lord, to believe it, to embrace it, to experience this eternal life, this abundant life, this unchanging, beautiful, wonderful life, Lord, that you give. We ask in your precious name.